Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Fairy Cove Shellfish. Fairy Cove is one of the largest oyster hatcheries on the East Coast, focusing on the production of the Eastern or American oyster. Using advanced hatchery production techniques coupled with its green building design and energy-efficient systems, Fairy Cove provides the aquaculture and commercial industry with high-quality, low-cost larvae and seed. Good for you, good for the oysters, and good for the water. For more information, please visit fairycove.org. Again, that's fairycove.org. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, how do crabs get around on land? They use the sidewalk. Recent research has shown that oysters have developed an advanced method of communication. They use shell phones. My guest today is Stefan Abel. He is the president and CEO of the brand new Fairy Cove Shellfish, an oyster hatchery located on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. Starting off his career, Stefan didn't even consider going into natural resources or natural sciences at all. In fact, he was military. In today's episode, Stefan shares his story transitioning from flying helicopters from the U.S. Navy to working for big-name startups like Sally May and CareerBuilder before taking the leap into the world of natural resource management. Stefan has some key insights into what it takes to change industries, and he shares them here today. I am so excited to share this episode with you. Please enjoy. Stefan, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. Good morning. How are you? Well, I'm really excited to chat with you today. It's going to be fun. Eventually, I want to get into how you got into the hatchery business in the first place. But right now, could you explain what a hatchery is and why it's so important? So you have fish hatcheries, obviously, and shellfish hatcheries. The only thing I can really talk about is a shellfish hatchery, which is what we just finished building and and we started to operate. All what we're trying to do is mimic what Mother Nature does. So we take adult oysters that we get, and I live up in Maryland here in the Chesapeake Bay. We just take oysters from locally cut oysters from the watermen. You basically breed them. You ripen them up to the point where they can spawn just like they do in Mother Nature, and you create small little oyster larvae, and they're in the building for about three weeks total, and then they leave and they go to local growers that attach them to oyster shell or attach them to small bits of shell itself and plant it back out in the bay. It's a beautiful thing. It's very simple, yet it's very complicated. The metamorphosis of the oysters and as they grow is very simple and straightforward, yet all the 
little bits and pieces that go into it as far as water quality and algae and temperature and salinity and all the different parameters that go into it makes it a little bit more complicated. Yes. There's lots of science behind it, right? Correct. Which I'm not. I'm not a scientist. So you grew up in the Chesapeake Bay, but you didn't initially have the idea of going into the natural resource business at all. You went to college for something totally different. Would you mind kind of walking through your history and how you ended up where you are? Back here in the Bay. Yeah. So I grew up, uh, my family had a sailboat and I would spend pretty much every summer from, you know, when I was one all the way up to when I went off to college on the Bay, cruise around the Chesapeake. And, you know, that's a big part of my youth, just, you know, being familiar with all the coves and creeks and whatnot. And it was time for me to go to college. I didn't really have the money to go. So I was able to get a ROTC scholarship through the Navy and studied mechanical engineering because that at the time seemed the right thing to do. Which, Stefan, I did not know that you studied mechanical engineering. It makes so much sense now that I know that. But for listeners, Stefan was my boss when I worked at Oyster Recovery Partnership. And he's very strategic and like a really good problem solver. And all of these are very excellent engineering traits. And when I was researching you for this, I was like, oh my gosh, he has a degree in mechanical engineering. That makes so much sense. But I had no idea. But I was the worst mechanical engineer ever. Why? I, I didn't know how to study. I didn't know anything about it. So the first two years... As I floundered around, I could, like, I, yeah, I was not a good student. And then my junior and senior year, I finally figured out how to study, and I was able to basically relearn everything for my first two years. And then I finally started kind of figuring it out. But I knew going through that that I did not want to become an engineer. So it worked out for me because of the ROTC scholarship I needed to give back my time in the military. And one of the things I always wanted to do was fly. So I was fortunate enough to be able to apply for Navy flight school. And then I was basically went through the flight program through the Navy. You want to talk a little bit about flying helicopters for the Navy and what that was like? Oh, there's nothing that compares to it. You know, you go through the program, everything you read about it is pretty much how it happens, all the training. I ended up flying H-53s, which are the minesweeper. So we, our, our primary mission was uh, going out looking for sea mines, either locating them or locating them and destroying them. So that basically what we did, it was the aircraft is fairly large. It was, I think, the largest one in the U.S. inventory. And so we'd spend four or five hours flying at a time looking for mines. So that was the training piece. And of course, during that time, there was also the first Gulf War. So we participated in that. And then once we got back from that, the Navy, you know, they have got various tours. So after you've finished your first flight tour, I made the decision I want to do a staff job versus continuing to fly. And I came up to Washington, D.C., where I worked at recruiting headquarters. So that was a staff job there. And when I was there, I ended up in the advertising and marketing division somehow as an administrative officer working for a captain, Vietnam vet, who was also happened to be a pilot, had a Navy cross. Through there, it was working with him, you know, like with most things in the, in the military, if 
you don't know it, they'll give you the opportunity to learn. So I ended up over the course of, I was there, what, about three years, started getting into the whole advertising and marketing realm within Navy recruiting and ended up doing TV commercials and radio commercials and print ads and promotional items and public service advertising. So it was a whole kind of eye-opening awareness for me in that, that realm. And it's something that I really enjoy doing. Yeah. And this was all like recruiting for the Navy. It was mostly your advertising. Okay. Yeah. So at the time, then I went back to school because when I was halfway through my tour there, I realized I wanted to get out and try something else, get into business. Um, so I went to school at night and got my MBA degree to kind of give me a competitive advantage, if you will, once I got out of the military. So you felt like at that time that you needed to have that extra degree rather than just the military experience? At the time, yes, because when I looked at my peers, so this was getting close to 30. Yeah, I figured my peers have been out in the business world for a number of years. They've been building up the resume, understanding business. How do I compete? with them and that atmosphere beyond just the military. So I figured getting background in kind of business would help me translate my military experience into the kind of business speak and world. So you ended up going to George Washington University, GW, for people that live in the area, and you got a degree in international business. Why international instead of regular business? I'm sure there's other levels. It was an MBA with a kind of strength in international business, only because the whole international realm, I always thought that the with globalization and whatnot, it can never hurt. During that time frame, there was, you know, international trade has become more and more apparent. You had the EU forming at that time. My mother is from Germany, so I had a background anyway in, with kind of European affairs and understanding from that realm. So I just figured it made sense. It interests me. So that's what I did. Okay. I always like having, keeping doors open. So I didn't know getting out if it would make sense. If it was an international company, if it made sense to, you know, work overseas, but I mean, that was an option. So why not? MBA is an MBA. If you can do, add, add a little bit more to it, then, you know, so be it. Okay. And then from there, it was all right. so where am I going to go now? And I, you know, I went to the different job fairs and whatnot, and it just, they didn't really appeal to me. And I, and I kind of realized as I was going through the whole job search process that, you know, I kind of liked the whole entrepreneurial realm, which has kind of followed me throughout my career, if you will. So I ended up deciding to go to an internet startup and this was in 95. So that was interesting. So I went through four or five different internet startups over eight years. You go in they run out of money or they do well, or I was fortunate to go with one of them, go through an IPO to see what that's like. But it was just interesting as just like a middle manager, what it was like, but the speed at which, you know, things happened where if you look at the government now, everything is in years in the internet space at that time, everything was like in weeks. So it was constantly something new was going on. It was fast paced something that I liked. There was no necessarily strict procedures and processes in place. You kind of made them as you went. And, you know, I enjoyed that. 
Yeah, that's a stark contrast from, you know, your set school curriculum, the set military protocols that you needed to follow, I'm sure. And then you go to the new and exciting world of the World Wide Web and all these startups, either exciting or really intimidating, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it was everybody was like minded, though. That was the other thing. All the people that were there just wanted to be part of it. I mean, I think it's no different today in the, the, you know, technology space. It's just like this excitement. It's just different than working for a Fortune 500 company. Companies I ended up did working for was a startup within a Fortune 500 company. And, you know, still it was more of a startup than it was a formalized, you know, organization. But no, it was, it was fun. It was, you, you see change. Change was instantaneous. It happened like on the fly. So it was good. Actually, something when we had talked about this before that you mentioned, and I just thought this is interesting, you were working on like the first edition of the internet. Now we're maybe on the coming up on the third edition of the internet. And I did not know that there was different editions of the internet. I didn't either. I, I'll read articles. I mean, it's evolved over the first years. I mean, I first website that I worked on, I was a project manager on it. I mean, it was just very flat. I mean, there was no internet radio. I mean, they wouldn't have done this podcast. Like that didn't exist. I mean, none of that. It was just basically a static brochure of your company on the internet. And I mean, even the database type applications where now you just take it for granted where you're doing you know, a search. I mean, that none of those algorithms have, it was just very two-dimensional, if you will. And that was a big deal in 95 and 96 and whatnot. I mean, just connecting everybody. Correct. Yeah. Was it some of the companies that you work for in that time frame? You mentioned Sally Mae and Career Builder. I mean, these are huge companies that are still around today. Was your role primarily outreach, business management, advertising, marketing, was that kind of still fitting that role or were you starting to do your changing roles or changing industries yet? I've always thought as I've gone through my career, that I guess my expertise, if you look at expertise or things that I enjoy doing, it's obviously management and marketing and then PR. When I got out of the Navy, I did stay in the reserves and I actually changed my designator, if you will, from aviation to public affairs. And so I was a public affairs officer through 07 because that kind of aligned more with my personal life and being able to, you know, get married, have kids and, and whatnot versus flying. It was an awful lot of time commitment. So it struggled to go back and forth as far as uh, military service and family and job then too, because you're on a reservist. But I've always tried to keep either, if you change jobs, either keep your job or keep the industry. So I've changed industries, obviously, multiple times, and I've changed jobs multiple times. But for the most part, it's always been the management marketing piece, and then I can more easily change industries. When I was working at CareerBuilder, I was one of the early ones there, I was, I think, 13 or 14 out of the out of the company when we started. We were on card tables in this nondescript office building outside of D.C. Yeah, and by the time we left there, we had moved a few times, and they had taken over a couple floors of a brand-new office building. But my role there was basically I was the initially the brand manager, if you will, for the job seekers portion of the website. And, 
you had not really carte blanche, but I mean, as the brand manager controlled the look and feel and design and features and benefits and whatnot of that website, basically, in essence, belonged to you. Obviously, you would have to write recommendations and point papers and seek money for if you want to do advertising or do partnerships or whatnot. But yeah, I mean, you, you worry day and night. Do job seekers come to your website? Are they looking for jobs? Are they you know, being successful? How do you keep them there longer? All the same things that apply today. But then there was real no rules written. You just kind of had to make it up as you went along. It's exciting. Challenging. As I look back now, I mean, you know, back then I went up to New York and did an advertising deal with this hot wire, this search engine that doesn't exist anymore. You know, you did deals with AOL cities when AOL was still around. You just kind of winged it. I mean, there was there was no I mean, I'm sure there's more to it than that. But I mean, for, for the most part, it's your imagination was your guide. And then you just had to make sure that it made sense going forward. And then yeah, you executed. Strategizing, planning. Correct. Figuring it out. Correct. Yes. I like it. You went from this like really exciting, fast-paced world of worldwide web and startups. And I mean, these, like I mentioned, Sally Mae, Career Builder, like they turned into huge companies. So I can only imagine the pace at which they grew. What prompted you to take a look back into the government side of things? Uh, the simple fact that during that time frame, now, now we're right around 9-11, startups are startups. Some do well, some don't. And it was after the downsizing, if you will, on one of them that you know, you're out of a job. So, I mean, I, I, I lost my job multiple times with the startups just because, you know, the money runs out, you know, the plan isn't, doesn't go according to plan. And so I was without a job. At the time I was married, had kids at home and I lived, you know, in Annapolis at the time. And I still do. And so what do you do? At that point, I was still in the reserves and right around 9-11 hitting, you know, there were an awful lot of opportunities for, somebody with my military background and public affairs to be able to support the, the cause, if you will. So I did um, some time at Secretary of Defense doing public affairs. And then just so happened that the Department of Homeland Security was formed. And so I went out there for several months as a public affairs officer with one of their directorates in the early early days when the whole DHS was basically in one building. Um, and so I worked out there for a few months and then just through the course of it, it just random phone call came in from a friend of mine who I networked with over the time saying, Hey, I'm working for the state of Maryland. Why don't you come out and, you know, work with me at the department of natural resources? I'm like, okay. Now it was a, Pay cut. However, it was five minutes from my house. And I had, for the most part, even in the military, when I worked in the dot coms, my commutes were anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half. And here, having an opportunity to go five minutes from your house to go to work seemed like a nice thing to have. So that's what I did. 
And it wasn't just, you know, an hour, hour and a half on like nice country roads. This is like an hour and a half in DC traffic. It was awful. I mean, there were, there were times where with the snow or rain, it would be, you know, six hours to get home. Yeah, it was, I, I lived on the one side in Annapolis and I would drive all the way out towards pretty close to Dulles every day and back. A lot of driving. So that is a huge leap. You go from, I mean, it's still government, but you go from like Homeland Security to like, that's all defense to natural resources. I mean, you said you grew up in the Chesapeake Bay, right? And like you had an appreciation for it. Was that weighing in the factor as well? Uh, Yeah, I enjoy the environment in general. And it seemed, yeah, it seemed like there was no bad stories with the environment. I mean, you know, the Department of Natural Resources here in Maryland, they deal with not only the Chesapeake Bay, but all the animals, all the trees, all the plants. I mean, it's really a very broad agency that's responsible for all this, obviously the state's natural resources, but there's, you know, a lot of dedicated scientists in there that, you know, spend their lives trying to make things better. And, and it's apparent. And so here I went in, I was working within the, the Office of Communications and Marketing you know, promoting all the things that the department does and what the state does. So, yeah, it was great. It was awesome. A lot of field trips, seeing a lot of things, getting out, and then figuring how do we better inform, you know, the public about all the the good things that the state has to offer. And that's really important. So you bring up two points. One is that your job wasn't to go play in the field. Like that wasn't in your job description or your job title, but you still got to go out and like see the good things that the DNR does, right? But that's with everything. Like, so I'm a big believer and you've got to, you've got to understand it and see it in order to be able to talk about it. Learning is important no matter where you are in your career to constantly be learning and and trying new things. So yeah, I wanted to get out and see what people do. That way you have a better idea of what it takes to do that job. Absolutely. And that's something I, you know, hear from listeners. They want to go, they want to go play out in the field. They want to be that field biologist, but a lot of them have skills that are, that could, you know, like you mentioned, you could transfer industries and keep the same job title. So it enabled, so they have a job title like outreach communications and they can transfer industries with that. And then you can always go play in the field and figure that out from there. Or once you're in that industry, now you can start changing jobs. But you have to know what you enjoy doing. So there are individuals that are really, really good at the science part, which is not me. And I, and I know it's not me. To sit there and do a controlled study group on some animal or some growth and writing up a scientific paper on that is... It, is not me. Right now, you know, there's many other jobs that are within in the marine biology sector. You've got policy piece. So what is the government? The government controls an awful lot on what happens within a given sector. You've got the various stakeholder groups that all have an input into what the ultimate policy is. You've got the actual programs themselves. Someone's got to still manage the program and make sure that it's funded you know, there's a schedule that goes with it. It's not just going out and being, you know, conducting an individual experiment. There's a lot of other pieces that need to happen or before that can even happen. I like the other stuff. I like the policy piece. 
more so I like focusing on projects that can be applied. So less research. Research is extremely important, but I like looking for solutions that actually will be able to be implemented by users of the resource. And that makes sense. Applied science versus just research. Answering a question or maybe not. Answer a question to ask another question. Yeah. Not that there's not value in it, but it's helpful when it's applied, especially when there's just so much going on in the world today that really needs that applied science to it. So I like that. And you have, you know, you made this jump from communications and outreach at the DNR, promoting all these wonderful things with the group, which is what I started to say is the second point. It's almost like with science, right? You sit in your ivory tower and you only tell the people that already know what's going on, what's going on. It doesn't help. You have to get the message out. And that's like all outreach and communication. And same thing with the DNR, if all they do is make policy and then the people that are impacted by it may or may not like it, usually the complainers is the loudest voice. So if you don't have messaging going out there explaining why it's good and why they're doing it, then it doesn't doesn't help. So you have to have to get out of the tower. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. So making the leap from again, government, now you're not going to fast paced startup, but to the nonprofit worlds. How did you make that leap? So I tried to do my own internet startup back then, which didn't work, but it was eye-opening as far as what, like how to go about raising money and uh, your business model and team members and whatnot. So it was kind of lesson learned there on that one. Real world application of your schooling there, hey? Well, it was, no, you just didn't know. Unless you go through it, you've got no idea. It's true. Yeah. So I always wanted to run a company. So that never really changed. I enjoy, I enjoy the responsibility and kind of growing an organization and, and kind of being in, being in charge. Yeah. So opportunity arose at the Oyster Recovery Partnership to, they're looking for an executive director and I applied for that. Now you, you've got to understand, I knew very little about shellfish and even less about oysters. Did you like to eat them at the time? Yeah, I always like eating okay. them. Right. I'm picky, but I enjoy eating them. So I really didn't know all that much about the entire sector. And I had no idea about just the unique aspect of it relative to the Waterman community, even though I'd been around it my entire life. And it was just really eye-opening learning about the fisheries of the Chesapeake. But I mean, that was one of my strengths or one of my attributes that I promoted when I went in and I was applying for the job was the fact that I'm going to be looking at it from a whole new perspective. So I was an outsider coming into this rather closed community. And so I ended up getting offered the position. So I was the executive director for Voice Recovery for just about 13 years, close to 13 years. And you took it from a borderline foundering entity to, I mean, it was doing wonderful things. So the whole the whole goal of Oyster Recovery Partnership, at least when I was there, and I don't know if it, that was the initial mission or if it's evolved since, but my understanding, it probably was the initial mission, was to put oysters back in the Chesapeake Bay. So for listeners, the stat is oysters are at 1% of historical levels in the Chesapeake Bay. They like back in John Smith's time, there was like navigational hazards of oyster bars and those numbers have been depleted through a variety of reasons, harvesting, habitat loss, water quality. 
Oyster Recovery Partnership was put together in order to help with this and to put oysters physically back in the bay by growing baby oysters and manually putting them there. So what was that like taking that over? Well, it's nerve wracking because you're A, you're learning the industry, B, you're having to deal with board of directors, which I'd never had before. You're responsible for raising money, obviously, to produce and plan oysters. The timing was really good in, in essence, too, because the state, I mean, as you just mentioned, ORP was founded on the premise that various stakeholder groups came together to increase the overall, you know, population in the Bay, working together, you know, putting down barriers, being nonpartisan, focusing on all aspects of, of, of the shellfish sector. So riding that fine line between the wild fisheries, so the commercial industry and restoration, and now obviously we have aquaculture. And it's, you know, what, what can we do to enhance each? And so we, we tried to be the unbiased individual that just went out and got the job done. It just so happened during that same time frame, they had just completed a oyster study, a EIS, environmental impact statement, on evaluating whether or not to introduce a non-native species. Asian oyster came from Washington State. The governor at the time really wanted to support oyster restoration same time that the federal government did. And so all of a sudden there was this huge blueprint that kind of came out of, they had an advisory commission within the state to kind of start restoring tributaries with oysters to populations last seen, you know, in the fifties and sixties and forties. And so we are just happened to be right there in the right spot at the right time. The federal government made a lot of money available. The state government made a lot of money available and a lot of different programs started to kind of come about and be reinvigorated. And this is probably about 2010 or so, 08 to 2010. So resulting from all these different federal agencies and state agencies working together, it's determination was made to restore five tributaries with oysters in Maryland and five in Virginia. Same time, the state was making more money available and dedicating it towards uh, the public fishery resources to help augment the wild fishery stocks. Either there's, I could probably talk for an hour on just the the oyster dynamics and what's happened. But needless to say, there was an opportunity for the Oyster Recovery Partnership to, you know, be part of that that effort in getting the job done and getting oysters back in the bay. You know, coupled with that. The state also had a couple of hatcheries at its disposal. The big one, the biggest one, and still to this day, is down at the uh, University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science. So their Horn, Horn Point Oyster Lab down in Cambridge that's capable of producing, you know, one, two billion oysters spat on shell a year. So billions of oyster larvae every year. They were the primary driver in between that and the Oyster Recovery Partnership, where we basically were logistics. We're a logistics company, I guess, the best way to describe it. We would get shell, put shell in a tank, take shell out of the tank, put it on the bar. We'd monitor the success, report on that success, and basically do that year over year over year. And, you know, with that, you know, you've got different programs, different needs that kind of came out of it. And the organization, just based on the scale as Horn Point, the hatchery ramped up its capabilities in producing larvae, then so too we ramped up production as well. 
I mean, when I was there, we were sending out, it wasn't just a little boat. It was, how big is that boat? Like 60, 70 was, feet? Yeah, 65 feet. And, and I mean, we, you know, a lot of projects will maybe do oyster restoration projects around the country will do an acre or two. And, you know, that's a big deal, you know, on a, on a given year that the, you know, ORP and his partners would do hundreds of acres um, of restoration work. And I, you know, just a few, few weeks ago, they just passed their 10 billionth oyster planning. Um, So they've, you know, hit that, that milestone as well. So that's a lot has come over the last few years as far as the restoration goes. And they've restored now four out of the five tributaries in, in Maryland that was on the goal. The last one is currently underway, uh, 400 plus acres worth of restoration. And so now they're looking at, you know, what's next. That's very cool. And very exciting. I mean, you feel like you're actually a part of something that was making a difference. You Correct. Know? Yeah. And you're a huge facilitator in that. Like strategizing. Well, it, it was, it was, you would, you would look at your facilitating, but you also would look at what were the, the variables and factors that would prevent you from achieving that and trying to address it before it's an, actually an issue. While I was there and you ended up launching it shortly after I left, you did a co-op, a seafood co-op, which is super fun. Could you explain what the Maryland seafood co-op is? I guess the premise to that is you've got, you've got to understand the, the cycle of the year of the watermen in essence. So the wild fishery, oyster fishery runs from October through March, where most of the watermen will go out and oyster. Normally the bridge period is from end of March to late April, mid-May, when really there's not that much going on as far as harvesting goes. And then then the crabbing season starts shortly thereafter. And then you've got some watermen that'll then do fishing, you know, gill net, hook and line, whatnot. And you've got some that'll do clamming and eeling. But I mean, the two big biggies are oystering and, and crabs. And so one of the ways that we were looking and figuring, so how can we help augment the watermen's income during this bridge period? And uh, basically give them supplemental revenue, but at the same time, uh, get more oysters in the bay and increase the potential for you know profits for them, which was basically creating a co-op that is not unlike an agricultural co-op, like Lando Lakes is an, an ag co-op, where you've got a bunch of farmers that get together and they basically take all their product and market it under, underneath a s- specific name. Um, this is the same thing using shellfish, oysters in this case. So the model is a little bit different where not all of our watermen owners, if you will. So there's, we have 21 at this point. They all pay annual dues and are part of this co-op. But what we've done is many of the members have their own lease bottom. So you can lease water in the bay to grow your own oysters within Maryland. And there many states have it. We also went out as an organization and started to lease bottom. So it was jointly owned by the corporation, if you will, to, to grow oysters. And then proceeds from the sale and harvest of those oysters would go back to the membership or shares. So we started that years ago and we're still growing. We've got 100 acres or thereabouts under management. We've slowly been trying to get 
the bottom planted, but some of the issues there has been the lack of, well, COVID obviously happened, which kind of slowed down everything, but the probably the biggest thing was the lack of larvae availability and the, the ability to produce this fat on shell that needed to go for the on-bottom aquaculture. So most of the watermen here in the Bay do on-bottom, directly on the bottom versus cage culture, in part because they've got the equipment to harvest that the oysters from the bottom versus cage. They just don't have the time to go out and manage it like a, a farmer does who goes out regularly to turn the cages and maintain yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Cages are definitely more day-to-day work, but they kind of produce a different product. I know a lot of the oyster aquaculturalists like to turn the cages so that you get that nice round oyster shell. If they grow on the bottom, they may or may not set so they get scraggly oysters. But if you already have the equipment to harvest off the bottom, yeah. And there's two markets out there too. There's the half shell market, which is what the cage culture product will give you. Right. And then you have the shuck market where it goes to a shucking house, it gets shucked, it goes in a can and it leaves there. It's a volume play. It's like, you know, going to a very niche grocery store that just sells, I don't know, whatever, butcher shop, let's say, versus going to a Walmart where you can get pretty much anything. And so it's, and, and the price is less, right? You, so in the case of on-bottom aquaculture, shuck product, I mean, it's a volume business, right? So you need a lot of product. It gets shucked, it goes in a can, it goes out. But there's a lot of money to be made in that. So it's just cost in, cost out revenue. I mean, it's just like any other business. But in this case, the watermen are used to doing on-bottom aquaculture. So and Maryland historically has always been about my perspective on bottom. I mean, that's how it came to be. That's been the fishery. Correct. It started wild on bottom and then you just kind of evolve it into an aquaculture, which leads us really nicely into your hatchery. But I want to put a pause because we keep talking about these watermen and not everybody knows what a waterman is. So coming from Florida, we don't have that term here. And I don't think it's, it's a ubiquitous throughout the country. Right. It's a fisherman. And it's like a special term that the fishermen of the Chesapeake Bay specifically coined themselves. And there may be some, you know, elsewhere in the world. I know some divers call themselves that as well. But these are, some are newer, but most of them are generational fishermen. And this is just like, it's a culture to them and more than just a way to go. It's not a, just a job. It's like a total culture to them. And it's tradition, and they take a lot of pride in what they do and how it's done. So working with them can be really rewarding or really difficult, depending on which side of the, the line you stand on. Yeah, but well, yes. I mean, that's that's always the case with anything. That's true. But there's some of the funniest people I've ever met. So you have a problem with your co-op that you don't have enough oysters. It takes a while. So some of my other assumptions were that you know you can start a viable oyster business and you're harvesting after two or three years, which really isn't the, the case. So it's taken four to five years instead of two to three. So the, the business model was off, but we're getting to the point now where we, we can harvest. Okay. I mean, there's so many environmental conditions that go into it, salinity, rainfall, food, you know, predation, whatever else. It just, yeah, it's just learning as you go. Absolutely. But with that, you were mentioning that just having the larvae was kind of a problem and was this part of your impetus behind the hatchery? No, because the other piece was, so, you know, after 2010, there was, you had the restoration and you had the 
public fishery. And then there was a desire to enhance the state's aquaculture industry and help build that up. It used to be really big and then it went away because of diseases in the bay. And so there were a lot of leases within the bay that were basically being held in the families and not really used. So back in 2010, they said, well, you got to use it or lose it. And so a lot more people starting re-engaging on aquaculture. The market was increasing. The price of the product was increasing. Survivorship was increasing. And there was a lot more money to be made within that sector. And when you start looking at the interest by watermen primarily to get into aquaculture, and when you start looking at the scale of the restoration projects and the desire and money available to do supplemental plantings for the public fishery, so either spat on shell or shell or moving seed, there were two, well, the, probably the biggest barrier to growth was the lack of larvae availability. And that came about, you know, become more and more apparent like 2015 or thereabouts, it was getting, you know, it was Horn Point was doing a great job. Uh, there was a couple other small state hatcheries, um, university hatcheries. There was one also down in Hooper's Island that had just started, but it just wasn't at the scale what needed to be done. So that's where this whole hatchery piece came from. So I was working with a, a group, a foundation who had, assisted in underwriting a, a grant to do a feasibility study. And indeed, as we went through it, and it's basically the business plan, we were indeed in need of additional larvae capacity. And so the Fairy Cove Hatchery was born, but you've got to build it. So you picked the site. Yep. Picked the site. So there's many variables that went into that too. It just so happened that the site that was ultimately selected was is farther up the bay than like the other, the state hatchery that's up the chop tank, but the salinity is actually higher where we are because we're on the main stem, but there was water quality is probably one of the biggest, but the other factor was finding talent and people because you need somebody to, to operate the hatchery. And depending, there's many parts of Maryland that are quite rural. You're far away from any sort of kind of civilization. So the thought there was if we can, you know, find a location that's close to, you know, good schools and, and activity that you're more inclined to be able to attract people to come work for you. So you found it's a 70 acre site, right? Right yes. on the water. Yep. You built it from the ground up. From the ground up. That's incredible. How did that process work? I mean, I know, you know, some substantially more than you did starting out about oysters and hatcheries. Did you have some outside help and input on what you needed? Obviously, it was not me. It was a, it was probably about a two-year process, maybe two and a half years in the design and building of the facility as we, and it was like halfway through COVID too. So it was like half of it was being built during COVID. I had over the years kind of talked to people, listened, visited, and looked at different facilities, what works, what doesn't, how to be more efficient. The key and maybe this is from my internet days, is including technology. I mean, there's an awful lot of biology involved in the hatcheries, but if, if there's a way to incorporate technology more, kind of streamline the staffing requirements. So the biggest cost to it, the building, other than the once you operate the facility, is the people. Utilities is a big one. 
And so is there a way to minimize the number of people that you need? And how do you build in redundancy? How do you build in uh, energy efficiency within the facility? What does the facility look like? So it's, you know, a lot of hatcheries often are built within a building that already exists and expanded upon. And here we basically had a greenfield that we started from scratch. So what's the ultimate design we'd want? You know, thinking about OSHA, right? All the safety requirements, how do you design around that? And so basically hired a aquaculture engineer to start the initial design. And then you had a architect and then you had building heating, cooling expert to, to come on board as far as the separate systems go. Then we had an implementer that actually installed the aquaculture systems. Everybody brought their own unique aspect to the project because everybody's looking at it from Design is one thing. Then you're looking at the energy efficiency. Then you're looking at the aquaculture controls where many of them didn't exist. So a lot of the code was written from scratch. And so basically it's, you know, using gravity, keeping in mind cleaning, keeping in mind safety. And so we just kind of pulled this this facility together. And you have it staffed with people who really know their stuff. So what does it take to staff a hatchery? I know you have a phycologist, a hatchery manager, which a phycologist well, hatchery, is an algae specialist. There's two. So oysters need algae. A lot of them is through bags or through open tank culture. And one of the things we figured early on was looking at doing, uh, we've got these bioreactors and they're basically self-contained units that basically can produce algae like nonstop for weeks and months on end. Really, so instead of requiring three, two, three, four people, I've got one person that kind of works on the algae part time, and the machines do the rest. The feeding is automated, they just run, they're just computers basically. And one of the other nice things that I picked up when I was, you know, looking and doing the exploring is you can pretty much run the whole facility from your house. So you can log into the different systems. You see immediately what's going on. You get alerts if a pump goes down or pressures are down or temperatures off. So you can then manipulate all the pumps, turn things off and on. We've got redundancy that's built into the entire facility. So if one system goes down, another one is right there ready to go. So it basically, you don't have to be there 24-7 to operate the facility. So when we leave at night, the building continues to run. The water continues to run, the heated, whatnot, and everything is... Oysters continue to get fed. So it's just all automated. So it, when it came time to hire staff, I was lucky enough to find an individual that worked at Horn Point who'd been there a number of years, who'd done most of the jobs that a hatchery needs to do. And, and he was excited that he wanted to change. And so he came on board as my, my hatchery manager. And then he in turn then hired his staff. So there's three other individuals, including the oncologist that works for him. So we've got four hatchery staff, and those are full-time. And it just so happens two of them also came from the West Coast. So, you know, every part of the country does things a little bit different. I was happy about having individuals from the West Coast because they may see things and do things a little bit differently. So is there a good way to learn something different or try different techniques that we may not be necessarily exposed to here in the Bay? And then the other half of the, the team is facilities. And just so happens that 
you know, you've got someone that, that needs to take care of the building and the building's close to 20,000 square feet. And so you've got pumps and pipes and sensors and heat exchangers and all that. And so I was fortunate enough to find a gentleman who actually comes from a waterman's family who was working in a similar type program within, you know, 30 minutes away. You just happened to live across the street. Yeah. So he came on as my facilities manager. And then we just hired a backup individual who, you know, his expertise is safety and whatnot. So it's, so we've got a full team now of six people. Very cool. Plus me. It's so exciting. Yes. And we just, we're wrapping up our first season of production and uh, we should hopefully hit our, our goal is 800 million I'd larvae. So that's the product that we end up selling. And so we should hit that. So we started, sold our first product in early May and we're wrapping up now. And your customers are all Maryland or Waterman within the Chesapeake Bay for the most part. Um, yeah. And it's all industry. So I, I really only want to support industry, you know, as, as you know, hatchery manager, and I talk about it, it's like, it's like a big Mac. We don't ask where the, what you do with the big Mac. Once you buy it, you do what you want to do, but we just sell you the big Mac. So we sell it to industry, you know, if they want to sell it, produce it, whatever they want to do, that's on them. But we want to support industry and kind of build up the sector. So yeah, so Maryland and Virginia. So we can easily sell within the Bay. And something that we were chatting a little bit about before we started recording was that oyster aquaculture and, you know, the hatchery and supplying the larvae within the water column is a restoration in and of itself because the larvae don't just stay there. They'll move around. You're kind of supplying the wild oysters as well. And the aquaculturists, the watermen are only harvesting what they have and then putting it right back. Yeah, aquaculture, all you're doing, so there's many values to to aquaculture. So namely, you're putting adult oysters or as they grow, oysters back in the bay. If they're diploid, which means they're, they can reproduce, they will reproduce in the summer months as they grow. They can start reproducing as early as like a year. So they're actually putting oyster larvae back into the bay that'll float around and set at some point. They also clean the water. You look where oyster leases are, where there's a high concentration of shellfish, the water actually is cleaner. They filter algae out of the bay, which is also then removing nitrogen and phosphorus. They also provide habitat for other species. So everything lives in around these reefs. There's no difference between an aquaculture reef and a sanctuary reef. The big difference there is after three years, you, you're removing the oysters, but the odds are great because you've got to use it or lose it, that oysters are going back down. So it's a constant net increase in the number of shellfish. As, as the watermen make more money doing aquaculture, then they'll continue to expand their business, which means more oysters are going back into the bay. It's a beautiful thing. It is. All right, Hefe. At the end of each episode, I have a few questions that I like to ask. You ready? I'm ready. Shoot. I don't think I gave you this first one, so this will be fun. What's your favorite sea creature? I never really gave it much thought. Not an oyster? I don't know. I kind of like the blue crab. I was going to say, or the blue crab. Come on. Give me, give me a Chesapeake one. Yeah. Blue crab. Blue crab. I mean, that, those are fascinating to me. 
So Yeah. So their Latin name is Calanectus sapidus, and that means beautiful swimmer. And they really are. You wouldn't expect it, but they really are fascinating to watch just cruise along through the water column. Yeah, their life cycle. It'll, it'll be interesting to, to watch the evolution here. Yeah, we haven't even gotten into the changing bay dynamics and whatnot. So it'll be an interesting time looking forward. Changing bay dynamics? Well, yeah, the, the bay temperature, salinity. Oh, you know, sea level rise, will it come in, won't it? Ocean acidification, will it impact, won't it? All that. I mean, I think there's there's just so many different models out there that say such a range of things that it's very much just like you can take take everything and be like, all right, it'll be somewhere in there and then we'll see how it goes from there, you know? Well, you don't, yeah, well, you don't, you don't know, but that's part of the thing. So what are the impacts and what could or could not happen? And is there a way to, to like look forward and try to, hopefully mitigate some of the negative impacts before they're actually impacts. Yeah. So are you trying to do that now with the hatchery and with the co-op? Less so the co-op, I mean, the co-op is a business to, to support watermen reducing their operational, like as members of the co-op, they can jointly purchase products and ultimately generate more money for them. The hatchery is a different, I mean, we've got a lot of capabilities within the facility as far as being able to control water dynamics and I mean, ideally, I would like to be able to experiment a little bit to see if there's better ways of doing things or trying different shellfish. And yeah, who knows? I mean, that's the focus up until this point has been let's let's focus on getting this this building operational. I mean, there's there was no blueprint on how to build a hatchery. You know, as we started it up in the spring, we didn't know if any of it was going to work. It's not like you put all this stuff together and then what does it? You know, you estimate temperature thresholds, flow rates, filtration rates, algae. I mean, it was the fact that, you know, the team was able to, you know, figure all that out and produce with minor hiccups is pretty cool. So, you know, next year we've, we want to kind of double production. But then ideally, yeah, at some point in the future, it'd be great to be able to sit there and, you know, do some experiments and kind of figure out different ways of doing things better and be able to adapt to the changing times correct dig it yep i dig it all right what does the ocean or the water the chesapeake bay mean to you it wouldn't be the ocean for many of your your listeners but the chesapeake bay i mean it's just part of my life that i grew up in and around on you know sailing i mean it's great being able to go out on a waterman boat and just drive around these creeks that i've been mess around on like my entire life so it's it's just like it's a my happy place like i could be on the water pretty much every day it's a cool spot it is if you were given a blank check unlimited funding what would you use the money for well you asked me this before and Mm -hmm. i'm not i'm not going to change my answer okay i at this point i don't know i mean having money is great so yeah could, could you do with a few million dollars to do something. Sure. But would it, would I actually, am I ready to spend that money? The answer would be no. I know that sounds kind of odd, but I found over the years that there's a time and place for everything. And as we, Ferry Cove, as we continue to grow, obviously we'll need money in the future. But right now, I mean, we're, you know, focusing on getting the building operational and going and then we'll figure out down the road when the next projects come up and we figure out what that business plan is how to kind of implement it 
So at this point, I will decline money. People ask me if I do need money, and I say, no, not at this point. Maybe at some point, if I if we want to expand and build another hatchery, okay, well, maybe that'll be then. But right now, I'm good. That's great. Because you kind of already got it, right? Like you wanted to build a hatchery, so you're there. So you're finishing that project before moving on to the next. Correct. Yep, exactly. Yep. Makes sense. Although I feel like it goes against a lot of people's nature to be like, no, I don't want any money. If someone gives you a million dollars with no strings, great. But there's always, there's always strings. Fair. And so if you, if you can't spend the money wisely or use it to advance something, then you know, there's, like I said, there's a time and place for everything. All right. What's your favorite field story or stories to tell? And for you, this could be like just a point in your career because field doesn't actually have to be on the water. Just a point in your career where you're just like, that was a moment. Or it could be a favorite time or memory on the Chesapeake Bay. Obviously, I'm not a field biologist, right? So it's, you know, just getting on one of them, just going out on a boat and being on the bay and saying, you know, how fortunate you are that you've got a job that supports like this place that you've been around the whole time. I mean, I didn't, I never looked at, you know, growing up, I grew up outside Philadelphia that I would someday think that I'd be living. I live in Annapolis. I drive over, you know, the, the hatcheries outside of St. Michael's, you know, you would go there in the summer to go, you know, for the weekend, go to the Maritime Museum and whatnot. And here you are driving through it every day and you're out on the bay on the water. I mean, it's like, that stuff doesn't happen, but it did. And I'm always, you know, pinching myself every time I get to go out and say, you know, how great it is. But as far as like change, I enjoy seeing change because every day, a lot of what I do is just, you know, the paperwork, the stuff that, you know, there's, there's no real cause and effect. It's the change happens over time. So being able to look back over 10 years or five years and say, look, you know, nothing was here before, but because of your actions and those of others working together, you're able to do X, Y, Z. I mean, that to me, the satisfaction of leaving the, the, the place better than when you got it. Yeah, I really like that. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? My big thing, and I think that would, it's a win-win for everybody. I kind of used it, you know, when I was at the Oyster Recovery Partnership, but simply eat more oysters. Most of the oysters you, you buy in restaurants these days are farm-raised, which means there's a fisherman or waterman that is growing them, whether it's on bottom or in a cage. And by eating more shellfish, especially during the summer months, when they're safe to eat, by the way, you know, you're, you're helping support a local community that has been around for, you know, generations. It's a great protein source. They're good for you. And uh, you're supporting local business. And then just make sure that once you're eating them, that they recycle the shell because we need every shell we can get to get back in the water. So they provide, just the shell alone provides a lot of value to the, the bay's ecosystem or the river's ecosystem. So eat more oysters. I like it. That was something we didn't even really talk about with Oyster Recovery Partnership, but they you started a huge shell recycling program. I mean, it's impressive the amount of shell that was actually recycled, the amount, like the piles, and, and it was used. It was used for oyster restoration, and it's great. And there's a small program here in Florida that emulated what 
ORP was doing. So you definitely kicked off a, a movement. Oh, was there. Every region in the country with shellfish aquaculture differs. I mean, there's different policies, different rules, but shell is one of the limiting resources. Even here in, in Maryland, is still a huge limiting resource as far as capacity and what you can and like how much oysters you'll be able to get back in the bay, especially for on-bottom aquaculture. I mean, shell recycling is, is very timely. It takes a lot of time to collect shell and every Part of the country kind of does a little bit different. Here in the Mid-Atlantic, you know, you've got a lot of individual restaurants. And so it's a lot of many pickups, smaller amounts of shell than you would with some of the larger restaurants, let's say in like in New Orleans or let's say in New York, where you can get a whole bunch all at once. But shell is a, you know, critical resource. And until they find a better substitute, not necessarily better, but a suitable alternative than we need every shell that we can get our hands on. Personally, I like the idea of closing the loop, right? Because if you don't recycle the shell, where is it going to go in a landfill for like to not be used? So just close the loop, put it back in the water. Yeah, it should go back. Dig it. All right, Stefan, if listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you or Fairy Cove Hatchery, where's the best place to do so? Uh, just go to our website would probably be the easiest and you know, send okay. a note. Uh, it's fairycove.org. Awesome. I'll put a link to that and everything we chatted about today in the show notes. Great. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.